Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I'd love to hear from you. My email is hope at upc-online.org. On this episode, we have a fantastic interview with one of my longtime animal heroes and friends, Lauren Ornelas of the Food Empowerment Project. But first, back by popular demand, we have another installment of the Glimmers of Hope segment. This is a segment where I dig into some good news for animals and share with you some positive stories from around the globe, good things that are happening for animals that you might have missed with all that's going on in the world. I want to thank the listeners who have sent me stories for the Glimmers of Hope segment. And if you see some good news for animals, if you come across something that you think that I could use on the next Glimmers of Hope segment, please send a link my way. Okay, so getting into some good news for animals. We're definitely starting to see some positive effects from the uh, pandemic, some positive effects for animals because of the pandemic and in response to the pandemic. The origins of COVID-19, of course, were trafficked wildlife, trafficking wildlife for human consumption. And Vietnam has made great strides to make the wildlife trade illegal in their country. The Prime Minister of Vietnam signed a new directive that bans wildlife imports and closes illegal wildlife markets. A scientific white paper was submitted to the administration by 14 prominent animal and environmental protection organizations asking for immediate action to ban wildlife trade, transport, and consumption in order to address the threat they pose to public health, but in addition, animal welfare and species conservation issues as well. In Vietnam, endangered species are consumed like cobra, turtle, pangolin, monkeys, birds, other unprotected species. So this is really important legislation, not only for human health and to help prevent future pandemics, but for those species whose numbers are dwindling rapidly. So I want to congratulate the animal and conservation groups in Vietnam that helped to facilitate this change. There's Always activists and advocates who worked very hard to make these things happen, and they never get enough recognition. So thank you to those advocates in Vietnam. So there's a similar story out of China. Pangolins are the world's most trafficked mammal. They have also been possibly linked to the COVID-19 outbreak. Pangolins, they kind of look like an anteater. They're, they have these cool prehistoric looking scales all over them. They kind of look like a little dragon. They're captured in the wild mostly because of the falsely held belief in the medicinal properties of their scales. And in China, they're believed to help cure numerous ailments, the scales, but there's no scientific basis for these claims. The scales are just keratin. It's the same substance as our fingernails. But the demand has pushed the world's pangolin species really to the brink of extinction. They're eaten as well. 
So this year, in response to the pandemic, China has removed pangolins from their list of approved traditional medicines as a raw ingredient for 2020. China has also upgraded the pangolin endangered status to class one, which prohibits almost all domestic trade and use of the animals. The beloved panda is listed as a class one endangered species. So that gives you an idea of the protection afforded. So again, thank you to the groups in China who worked to help make this happen and helped to protect the pangolin. So moving on to yet another story that again is in response to COVID-19, the Netherlands is Europe's third largest mink fur producer, and they just voted to ban mink fur farming this summer. So in the beginning of the pandemic, in the spring, there were a couple of mink farm workers that contracted COVID-19 from the mink, or it was extremely likely that they got it from the mink. And in response, the industry killed hundreds of thousands of mink. Some of them were just day old or week old pups. And this drew media attention and outrage to this already cruel and unnecessary industry. Conditions on fur farms are not all that different from those in a wet market where COVID-19 originated. There's scared animals kept in filthy, crowded cages. Many are often sick and injured. The Netherlands had already phased out fox and chinchilla fur farming. Mink farming was being phased out, but the end date wasn't until 2023. So because of the pandemic, advocates were able to lobby to get an immediate ban, and they did. So this is great news for mink. So thank you to those animal advocacy organizations that helped to speed the phase out and get an immediate ban on mink farming in the Netherlands. Okay, so moving on to some vegan stories. There is a London city council that has banned meat for their official events. The environmental community finally seems to be recognizing veganism as a tool to fight the climate emergency. It's really exciting to see this. We are also now seeing city councils stepping up and banning meat at official city functions as a statement of support for a vegan diet to help curb climate change. Most recently, in July of this year, Infield Council in London made such a pledge. They said, all events held by Infield Council, where catering is provided, will offer only vegan or vegetarian options. Berkeley, California City Council passed a similar ban on meat in 2018. So this all sets a really great example for people to follow. Okay, next in our Glimmers of Hope stories, I know there are Costco lovers out there, and I'll admit I am not one of them. <laughs> I have tried, and friends of mine who love Costco have taken me shopping there with their card, trying to show me the joys of vegan Costco shopping, but to no avail. I, <laughs> I'm not a fan. But there is a company called Veg, V-E-D-G-E, that is considered the vegan Costco. And they're only available right now in Hawaii, but they're very popular. And the good news is that they're expanding to the mainland. They are a vegan wholesaler 
that will be selling vegan products to both consumers and the food service sector, like restaurants. They function like Costco in that they sell in bulk and at accessible prices. Veg plans to launch a website to have direct-to-customer shipping for both consumers and businesses. So they're also going to be shipping their frozen products inside environmentally friendly and foam-free packaging, which I really like. I, I hate getting perishables mail order. So during the pandemic, I've been ordering bulk as well, like bulk beans, but I just, I've stopped ordering anything perishable or frozen because of all the horrible non-recyclable packaging that you get in the mail. So I'm glad this company is looking into that. And this company's goal, Veg's goal, V-E-D-G-E, Veg's goal, is to have vegan food be more accessible to everyone at lower price points and shipping directly to your door. So that's really some great news. I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, uh, option for people. So look for the Vegan Costco Veg, V-E-D-G-E. So this next story is pandemic-related, but in a different way. As of this summer, even during the pandemic, more vegan restaurants have opened their doors than closed them. So in the U.S. and England, there have been a, a little over 400 restaurants that have closed their doors because of the pandemic. So that's bad news. But there have been over 500 businesses, vegan businesses, that have opened. So the market for vegan food is expanding and it seems to be increasing even during the pandemic. So I reported in the last Glimmer of Hope segment that plant-based meats and cheese sales were up considerably over last year, but I saw recently that tofu and tempeh sales are up 88% over last year. So that's really great news. And I love that because I love tofu. So back to the restaurants, even though we have lost so many vegan restaurants due to the pandemic, it's good to know that there are even more that have opened their doors. So that kind of counterbalances that loss. Okay, last two Glimmers of Hope segment stories. These come from the oceans. Good news from our oceans. So sharks are starting to get the recognition of conservation circles that they so deserve. And Taiwan's fishing agency is going to be imposing a ban on fishing three of the largest shark species, including megamouth, great white, and the basking shark. The waters around Taiwan are extremely biologically diverse, so they're trying to preserve the sharks in that area. 60% of megamouth sharks are, that are caught worldwide are caught in the fishing nets off of the Taiwanese coast. So this is great recognition that sharks are vulnerable and an endangered species. Taiwan already has bans in place for killing whale sharks, so this just adds to that growing protection. The group Environment and Animal Society of Taiwan helped work to get this Taiwanese shark fishing ban, and I'm sure others that we don't know. So congratulations to the activists who worked on this issue. This is another great win for sharks. Our last Glimmers of Hope story is about two beluga whales, Little Gray and Little White. 
They were captured off the coast of Russia in 2011 and kept in a Chinese aquarium. And now they are on their way to freedom, back to the ocean. The Shanghai Aquarium, where they were held captive, was bought by a company that opposed keeping whales in captivity. So that's when their journey to freedom started to unfold, and it took trucks and tugboats and airplanes and pulleys and stretchers and all of this uh, stuff to get these belugas from China to Iceland. And I, I just, I can't imagine how stressful it must have been for them. They said that they did do trial runs to try to get them used to the equipment and noise. And, but I, uh, I still just, I can't imagine how stressful that would be. And, and whales just shouldn't be out of the ocean to begin with. Uh, but they have been transferred to an eight-acre sanctuary in Iceland for rehabilitation. So they're getting acclimated to this new sanctuary. There's sea life and kelp and a, a more natural environment there. And the ultimate goal is to free them when they are ready and able to take care of themselves. So I'm so happy to think of Little Gray and Little White being so close to freedom. And I want to thank the team that made this happen for them. There's over 300 beluga whales in captivity who now have the potential to be free with the success of Little Gray and Little White. So there are good things happening for animals. So that's it for our Glimmers of Hope segment. I think it's really good to reflect on these wins for animals. There is so much sadness and strife in the world right now. But please know that there are good things happening. Strides are being made in the right direction. Even small steps can be significant. And there are people fighting and sacrificing every day for other animals. There's animals fighting for their freedom. So if you see some good news for animals out there, please send a link my way. And I might feature that story in our next Glimmers of Hope segment. Okay, so I want to bring in our speaker now. I'm so honored to have Lauren Ornalis here with us on the podcast today. Lauren is the founder of Food Empowerment Project. She was the executive director for many years. Lauren has been active in the animal rights movement for more than 30 years, and I can personally attest to that as we did activism together back in the 90s. Uh, we're both from Sonoma County, California, and have stood side by side at many a protest. Uh, she is the former executive director of Viva USA, a national nonprofit. It's a vegan advocacy organization, and she also served as the campaigns director with Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition for six years. She has achieved wins for the animals through the decades with campaigns against Trader Joe's and Whole Foods Market and Pier One Imports and others. She even helped halt the construction of an industrial dairy operation in California. She also has a TED Talk that you should definitely check out, and I will have a link to that in the show notes. So welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me, Hope, and I'm surprised you didn't mention we got arrested together. That's right. We sure did. Uh, you're welcome to tell the story if you'd like. <laughs> uh, 
uh, we we had many adventures back in the '90s for sure. <laughs> Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely, it's great to have you and great to talk to you. Why don't we start by you just telling us your story um, about yourself, your activism journey, when and why did you go vegan? Um, how did you get into activism? What's Lauren's story? Well, I will try to sum up Lauren's story. <laughs> but I actually am from Texas. I grew up in San Antonio. And my parents got divorced when I was about four. And when I was in elementary school, uh, my mom told me that the chicken I was eating was a chicken. And I decided I didn't want to eat animals anymore. Um, and this is in hindsight, I realized that one of the reasons why I probably was becoming so attached to the idea of not wanting to hurt animals was the fact that, you know, my parents got a divorce when I was young. Therefore, I pretty much was having to be taken care of by different people, being separated from my mom and my sisters. And I think when I look back, of course, I think that that must have been my start to a realization that I didn't want to separate families. I didn't want to hurt anybody's family. So, you know, I went vegetarian in elementary school, but I wasn't able to stick with it because my family didn't have a lot of money. And eventually, you know, I just had to eat what people gave us. And so I went back to eating animals. And in high school, I decided when I was 16 that I was going to go vegetarian and didn't care if I ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day, but I didn't want to eat animals anymore. And by the time I was 17, this was in 1987, I got interested in animal rights. And by 18 in 1988, I decided to go vegan for the animals. And during this time, I had also been involved in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. And as being a, a very proud Chicana, um, being Mexican, um, I was also raised with an understanding of the great boycott and what was taking place um, for farm workers. And so, uh, and, uh, Lauren, the great, mm -hmm. what was it you said? The great? Great boycott. Oh, the grape boycott. Yeah, yes. the grape boycott was started by Larry Itliong, a Filipino worker, and um, was championed and brought to be more public by Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, the co-founders of the United Farm Workers. Yes, yes. So, but, but being in high school at the time, you know, I was against the war, I was against the death penalty, but so many of these issues were things that I couldn't really do a whole lot on. And so I decided to focus all my time and energy on animal rights because this is something I could decide in by what cosmetics I bought, what I ate, everything like that. And so I really just, just dedicated my life to the animal rights movement. Um, I was involved with a local animal rights group and basically just asked them, what courses should I take in college? And they told me what classes to take. And that's exactly what I took in college. I started the first animal rights group for a high school in Texas. Um, I had a university group and then I changed universities partially because of animal rights reasons. Um, the Animal Liberation Front had done a raid on uh, Texas Tech University. And I decided to show that film at my university and got a lot of pushback from the administration there. And so I was kind of like not really welcomed anymore by the university that I was going to. So I moved to Austin, Texas and started an animal rights group there when I went to college. And eventually um, started an animal rights group in Austin, Texas called Action for Animals. 
and then started working for the National Animal Rights Organizations as well as doing grassroots activism. So basically, um, as you mentioned, I also was doing a group called Viva USA where I did investigations of factory farms and slaughterhouses. And during this time, I was starting to get a lot of pushback from animal rights activists when I would talk about human rights issues. During this time, I learned about what was happening for chocolate in Western Africa. And I also, there was going to be a boycott against strawberries. And so I started to talk about these issues while running Viva USA and just trying to get animal rights people to you know, to understand that there are other food justice issues going on. And I got a lot of pushback from the animal rights movement saying that I was hurting the animals by talking about these other issues. And so I was kind of at a, a loss as to what to do because I felt like I didn't want to, I didn't want to separate these issues. I found that they were both important and I wanted to elevate both of them. And it wasn't until I went to speak at the World Social Forum in Caracas, Venezuela in uh, 2006 that I really felt empowered by all the people that I was around. I went there to speak about corporate animal ag and how it impacts animals, workers, and the environment, but there were so many people at this event who looked like me who were talking about worker issues and the environment and just everything. And so that was kind of the, the beginnings of Food Empowerment Project. So you mentioned in there, and I do want to talk about Food Empowerment Project, um, we'll, we'll get there for sure, but I know that in the past you've done, and you mentioned you've done multiple investigations on animal farms and animal farming. What are some of the stories that, that stand out to you? Is there one of the investigations that you know, was, was really egregious or something that you uh, remember that you could tell us about? So every investigation I did, there was something that impacted me. And I did investigations from duck farms to where hens are kept for laying eggs, to where hens are raised for meat, to dairy farms, quote unquote, veal farms, pig farms. In all of them, I basically would pick one animal who I saw that I would decide I was doing everything for. And each one of them had their own different egregious thing that took place that, you know, when I close my eyes and I think about, I can see all over again. And I, because this is UPC, um, one of the ones I just wanted to mention was the, the chicken farms. And I investigated chicken farms in Georgia as well as in California. And in the Georgia facilities, it was a Tyson location where I was in there for a very short amount of time and my lungs were burning because of the ammonia in there. Was this a chicken meat farm or eggs? Yeah, or? yeah mm -hmm. meat farm. And in California, it was a little bit different because of course they change how they are. And, you know, again, I will admit I took animals from some of these facilities um, to live out their lives without harm. But in one of the investigations I did of chicken farms, um, I can't remember the name of it now. They use the talking chickens for their advertising. Foster's Farm. Foster mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Farm. And when I walked out of that chicken farm, I, I collapsed. Wow. And it took me a while to get up. And the reason why is because the enormity of how many animals were in these facilities that my mind was just reeling, like, how do we get people to understand that these animals are individuals? And, you know, there was shed after shed after shed of, you know, hundreds of thousands of these precious little birds. And 
I'll never forget the 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 the, enorm- the pressure I felt in my chest, just trying to figure out how can we change this for them. And um, I mean, there's obviously you know stories I can tell of cows and their babies moving back and forth, of pigs. I videotaped a pig dying in front of me in a pig farm in North Carolina. And this stuff was hard to do, but most importantly, obviously, it was trying to get this information out to the public and knowing that for those people who are compassionate, there's no way they could look at eating animals in the same way again. Yeah. I mean, you were doing the really important work back earlier, you know, in in the decades earlier um, than now of getting that information that we wanted to get out there, the video, the stories. So thank you for doing that. It's, you know, so important for people to understand. And, and just like you said, how you just collapsed from the enormity of it. I, I think people aren't able to see firsthand like we are, um, those of us that have actually been in these places. They're not able to experience that. And so it's so important for you, know, you to have that video and tell those stories. So thank you for doing that work. So you founded Food Empowerment Project in 2007, you said. What inspired you to start the project? I know you talked a little about that, but, uh, but I'd love to hear more about that interconnection with food justice issues and worker issues. And I mean, this is, it's such a, a wonderful intersection of social issues with the veganism and animal rights. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear more because it's just such an important project. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I started Food Empowerment Project, I actually had a full-time job working for an environmental justice organization. So when I started Food Empowerment Project, I was like filled to the brim with all of the worker issues that I wanted to talk about. And, you know, I had to figure out a way to, you know, narrow the focus and food seemed the right way to do it because obviously that included non-human animals and something that those of us that have the privilege do several times a day, we eat. And so we have the opportunity to make a difference with our food choices. And so, you know, I kind of brought back for me, you know, obviously trying to get people to go vegan to lessen the suffering of non-human animals is absolutely critical. But in doing so, we're therefore then encouraging people to consume more produce. And those are two things I can't disconnect anymore. It's impossible for me now to talk to people about going vegan and not wanting to talk about what happens to farm workers as well. So those two issues really lead one into the other. So that was that was pretty pretty easily done. And then I actually lived in San Jose for a while in California, and I lived across the street from two liquor stores and I worked across the street from two liquor stores and the idea of lack of access to healthy foods was just starting to come to the forefront and I realized that when we talk about veganism again and not wanting to call harm to non-human animals that not everybody has that right to choose because they are living in communities where they don't even have that access to healthy foods and so I felt it was really important to take a look at the lack of access to healthy foods. One, because it's an injustice that's taking place. Um, But two, it is impacting people's ability to go vegan. But more than anything, it's just really trying to show people the various ways that our world is connected. It's connected in terms of uh, who 
puts it on our table and how they're treated. And the various ways in which we need to look at oppression as a singular thread that when we look at food is kind of woven together. And so oppression and exploitation are very much part of the food system. Food Empowerment Project's work is really about making connections. We're here to help inform people about what's taking place in the food industry, but also give people tools in order to make a difference. As a Chicana, um, I feel that many of the things that those of us who are Black and Brown and Indigenous, we've lived through in our lives to where we can't piece apart different things, that it's all connected for us. And so when starting Food Empowerment Project, there was no way I could do any different, but keep everything and show how things are connected. Yeah. And something that I've learned from you and your work is, you know, I, I, I used to often say in, you know, vegan talks and when we give presentations, oh, going vegan so easy. It's so easy. Anyone can do it. And I think it's something that we had in our toolbox that we used to always say as vegans, but it's not that way for every community. It's not that way for everyone. Uh, there are food deserts. There um, are as low-income people that are unable really to have access to fresh produce and uh, to you know vegan alternative foods. So I now have changed the way I speak about that because I'm much more aware uh, that it's not just so easy for everyone. Yes, and thank you for listening, Hope. I mean, exactly. We, I think that for so long, we just wanting people to go vegan, that we we're like, it's so easy, it's so easy. And I think that we never realized, because I'm sure I've said that as well, that, that how we might have sounded to other people who have different lived experiences that we did, who knew better, and who knew that wasn't true, and that possibly eroded our credibility with them. So yeah, Food Empowerment Project, we work on um, lack of access to healthy food or food apartheid. Um, where, you know, black and brown and indigenous communities do not have the same access to fresh fruits and vegetables, as well as meat and dairy alternatives. And we do this work in a variety of ways. Um, we follow environmental justice principles, so we only go into communities when we're asked to. And we make an assessment of the community, where we physically go in and we survey for fresh, frozen, canned fruits and vegetables, as well as meat and dairy alternatives. And we, you know, put out a report on that community and the availability of it in the higher income areas and in the lower income communities. And after we do that, we then put out uh, focus groups. Depending on the community, we make sure that our focus groups represent the community uh, appropriately. So in one community, our, we had three focus groups in San Jose that were all conducted in Spanish. In Vallejo, California, where we're currently working, we did seven focus groups to make sure we captured the Black, Filipinx community members, the seniors, as well as we conducted one of those in Spanish. So to make sure what the community is experiencing as barriers, as well as what some of the solutions might be. You know, one of the reasons, obviously, we're doing this work is because access to healthy food should be a right and not a privilege. And in the United States and in other Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities, um, that that's not the case. And so our work is really just trying to take a look at it, make sure that, you know, we help right a wrong that's taking place, but also is to acknowledge that for those people who want to go vegan, it may be difficult to impossible for them to do so. And they should have a right to if they want to. And 
recognizing as well that the fact in these communities that this food is not available to them increases dietary diseases. So we know diets higher in fruits and vegetables is better for your health. And for these communities to not be having that access means that their health is going to be in a decline. But also importantly is the fact that things like dairy alternatives being not available is very problematic. Many people call those of us who can't digest cow's milk lactose intolerant, but at Food Empowerment Project, we call that lactose normal. Because first of all, how is it normal for anybody to consume cow's milk into adulthood or goat milk for that matter? But also that too many times the onus is put on black and brown and indigenous people that something's wrong with us when there's not. Colonization is what brought milk to many of our lands, my ancestors especially. So, you know, to not have these dairy alternatives available for those of us who are lactose normal means that what is actually available to us is bad for our health. I love that lactose normal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is normal and natural about drinking another animal's milk? We've always, we always have said, you know, we're the only animal on earth that drink another animal's milk and drink milk after infancy. Uh, It's not normal or natural. Uh, So I, I love that that lactose normal. Absolutely. So Food Empowerment Project has a really unique campaign that exposes uh, child slave labor in the chocolate industry. And many vegans think that, you know, chocolate that's dairy-free is cruelty-free. But as you have educated me on this issue, and I I now buy only slave-free chocolate on a personal level, and I also try my best to only have slave-free chocolate at my events, like the Conscious Eating Conference, uh, and I encourage other organizers to do that as well. So please tell us about this issue. How are the children used and, and abused by the chocolate industry, and what can we do to help? Thank you, Hope, for uh, making sure that you're eating your ethics and not buying chocolate from slavery and child labor and making sure that the events that you organize don't as well because consistency is what matters. So what's happening right now is that in different parts of the world, primarily Western Africa and Brazil, um, child labor and slavery is taking place for the chocolate industry. You have millions of children in Western Africa who are victims of the worst forms of child labor, including slavery, working in the cacao industry. Children as young as seven years old holding heavy machetes trying to cut cacao pods out of the trees. Young children who are being forced to carry 40-pound bags of cacao pods. They're beaten if they don't move fast enough. Some of these children are locked in overnight, and they're beaten if they try to escape. And all of this for chocolate. In Brazil, um, which is now just starting to show some of these same problems, you have slavery taking place as well. And this is not a good sign, hoping that Brazil um, tries to deal with this issue immediately so things don't become as bad as they are in Western Africa. And, you know, you have children in Western Africa in 2018 who were sold into slavery for like $10 each. So this is a huge problem that's taking place primarily because these farmers aren't being paid um, what they should be by these multi-billion dollar chocolate companies. We have a list of chocolates we do and do not recommend on our website. It's broken down into the different categories so you can see why we don't recommend particular companies. We also have free apps that people can download for their Android or their iPhone. And we update this list every month and every company has to make at least one vegan chocolate to make our list. 
And if there's a company that you love that is not on our list, reach out to us. We'll be happy to contact them. And if there's a company that you love that is um, not recommended on our list, on our app, you're able to reach out to that company and ask them to do better. That's awesome. Yeah, I I love your app and I highly recommend it to people. I use it when shopping. So if you're you know in the chocolate aisle and there's a new brand of chocolate you're not familiar with and you're excited about, you can check it out uh, on the list and see if it is recommended or not. So I really appreciate that so much. Thank you. Thanks for using it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's so I think critical to look at the broader picture here and see that, you know, it's not only the animals suffering, that these children are suffering too. I mean, I heard stories of, you know, from your website that uh, children were like kind of coerced with like promises of, of bikes and things like that, that children would love or toys, things like that. And, and then they're, you know, promise these things and whisked away saying that, oh, we'll get you a bike. And and they're taken from their families. I mean, it's not orphans. I'm sure some are orphans, but I mean, not that that should matter, but still it's horrible. Um, yeah. A lot of them are taken. I mean, a lot of them also come from very poor families that they think they're going to be going into work, you know, and just being able to send the money back to their families and they never see their children again. But yeah, some are trafficked hundreds of miles away where they're going to. They don't even speak their local dialect. Mm. you know, some slaves have obviously escaped and that's how we know what's been happening. Wow. That's awful. Well, thank you so much for doing this work and for making these connections and, you know, showing us that there's a lot of places where we can make a difference and we're already as vegans used to avoiding products. So this is just, you know, another tool in our wheelhouse that we can make a difference. Uh, So I appreciate the work you do on this so much. Thanks. Yeah, I always say that as vegans, we're kind of already equipped for this. We're already thinking about these things. We're already reading labels. We're already, you know, so we are, we are the, the best position to make a difference on all these other issues as well. So I know that Food Empowerment Project has a new effort called Fight for the Ocean. And I love it when we get to talk about fish. They're really the forgotten food animal. So I want to hear all about this campaign and how it's going. Sure. Yeah, it's fairly new. Um, And they kind of have like a two-pronged approach to the effort. So Fight for the Ocean was created in honor of Dr. Sylvia Earle. So on August 30th, we have people go out and do ocean cleanups. Obviously this year, due to COVID-19, it'll look different. But basically, our goal is to remind people that even though we're vegan and we're doing all that we can for the ocean by not consuming the creatures in her, we all have to do a little bit more because the ocean is dying. So we coordinate ocean cleanups around the world where people go out and they pick up trash like any other group would do. But we're, you know, we're also talking about veganism and the the information cards that we hand out are also talking about not consuming animals. So another part of the work that we're doing is has not started yet, so I will not be able to talk about that part, but it's basically just trying to get people to understand, you know, you've seen it all, we've all seen it, where you have people who see animals such as dolphins or sea turtles caught up in nets, and people are pained by it. 
then somebody goes in and they cut the nets and they rescue them and then everybody's so happy about what's just taken place but these people still consume sea creatures and they don't recognize that those nets are only in those oceans because of their consumption of sea creatures so what we're going to try to do is try to bridge this gap with conservationists and veganism to show people that you know we're looking at vegans and we're saying yes we all must do more let's go and do those ocean cleanups but we also want to look at the conservationists out there and say, thanks for doing the ocean cleanup. Thanks for doing everything you're doing. But please don't forget that by consuming creatures from the ocean, you are contributing to their death as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and those nets, people don't realize, but all those nets are made of nylon, which is plastic. So, you know, I, I think people think that those nets are cotton or something and we'll just biodegrade, but they're not. They're all made of plastic now and they just continue to float in the ocean after, you know, if a fisherman has a rip in one of his nets or something, he doesn't responsibly haul it in to land and then put it in the land. No, of course, it's just going to get thrown into the ocean. I think it's called ghost nets. Yep, ghost yeah. Nets. Where yeah, we actually had one donated to us. Um, which I cut apart to use as information, you know, to show people and they can feel it for themselves and know what it's made out of. But we still had like 100 feet of it. And so I reached out to everybody I could to find out what, what can we do with this net. And there was nothing. Because you can't burn it because it's going to be toxic fumes released. You bury it, it's still plastic. It's not going to go anywhere. Right. And so one of the suggestions that was given to us was donate it to an artist. And that's what we ended up doing because there was no way to dispose of it in a, you know, environmentally safe way. Right. And there's so much of it in the ocean and the marine mammals get caught in it and they drown because they can't surface for oxygen. And yeah, it's just horrible. And yeah, and you're right. They don't make the connection that it's because of fish, fishing, eating fish, that all this ghost netting exists. That's what's responsible for the destruction. I mean, of course, but we're not going to ignore the fact that people should need eat fish for the fish's sake either. But we, want, we don't want people to feel bad about that compassion that they have. It's great that people are upset by sea turtles being caught in them. We, we know that is great. That is compassion. Yeah. We just wanted them to take that a step further. Yeah. and recognize that they are unfortunately contributing to that. I think another aspect of this that I'm sure you you know know about and are possibly going to incorporate is that we're eating so many fish, so much of the ocean's fish supply that that fish that eat fish are starving. Right. So we're taking so much of the resources away from the animals that need them for survival. We don't, but they do. Right. And you can look up the food chain too. I mean, why are they killing seals and sea lions sometimes? You know, <laughs> it's, it's because they don't want them eating the fish. Right. So I'd like to switch focus and uh, talk about something that, of course, is on a lot of people's minds right now with the Black Lives Matter protests that happened and really the subsequent national reckoning with race issues that I'm seeing all over the place in uh, mainstream media right now, which is wonderful. How can vegans be better anti-oppression activists? How can we be better allies? 
It's a great question. I think that there's a lot that vegans can do and need to do. I would start by first saying that I guess, the, and I'm not on a lot of social media, but my understanding is there's a lot of pushback and actually Food Empowerment Project has experienced this, that anytime anybody talks about any other issue other than that impacting non-human animals, we are told we're hurting the animals. We're told it's not important as what's happening to the animals. What's happening to the animals should be the only thing that we care about. And so it's leaving those of us, um, it's like they're trying to push us out of the animal rights movement, even though many of us have dedicated our lives to it. Uh, and I think that vegans who are doing that need to be ignored. People need to step away from those vegans because they're not helping anything. What That's they're cool. doing is they're saying some vegans are more important than other vegans. Some vegans' life's exper lived experiences are more important than others. And those types of people need to be dealt with and ignored. So I think that yeah. first and foremost, that has to happen. This movement needs to take a stand. I think that vegans need to learn. I think they need to listen. I think that they need to amplify the voices of um, black and brown and indigenous um, vegan and animal rights activists and organizations. Uh, because what's happening is, is that the animal rights movement has the reputation that it does with many of whom I feel are our natural allies, partially because the types of campaigns that some organizations have run, but also because the only organizations that seem to get a lot of attention are those run by white people. Ultimately, if we want to help animals, if we want everyone to go vegan, then you need to embrace everyone. You have to open your arms wide and be able to adjust uh, the message and adjust your thinking and adjust your center of, of uh, concern uh, to be broader. Yeah. I mean, we can't expect other people necessarily to widen their circle of compassion if we can't widen our circle of compassion to the most vulnerable people in our society. That's right. And I don't mean vulnerable necessarily in a um, they can't speak for themselves. Black Lives Matter has proved that um, with all that's taking place around the U.S. right now. But it means that they still don't have the power when white people are the ones who are in charge and making these decisions and punishing them just for the color of their skin. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, we need to be better. We, we, have, we have a long way to go. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any specifics on what individuals can do that are doing in animal rights activism or what organizations can do to be better? Well, I think that people need to really evaluate how they do their activism. And I think we've talked about some of that today in terms of not saying things like it's easy to go vegan or claiming their chocolate's cruelty-free. Um, I think those are two things, but I think they need to take a look at their activism and how they're doing it. And if it's incorporating the voices of, of black and brown and indigenous vegan activists, I think they need to take a look at the types of campaigns and the language that they're using. If they're using language that's offensive to black, brown and indigenous people or not, I think that they need to recognize if they're, you know, promoting quotes from certain people who are maybe racist. So I think that they, it's really talking about a true evaluation of everything that they're doing. 
I don't think that it's just about hiring black and brown and indigenous employees. I honestly think that we need to have more animal rights and vegan organizations run by black, brown, and indigenous people. And I, I say that very strongly um, because I think that there needs to be a way for a different type of activism. I started Food Empowerment Project. We're a vegan organization, but the way we do veganism is different. And we do it differently, partially because of my lived experiences and just the way my life is and the way I look at things and, and how I see the world. And we could see the same thing if we just had more black and brown and indigenous people running their own groups. An anti-vivisection campaign might look completely different if run by a black woman than it would done, run by another organization. I'm not saying one's right. I'm not saying one's wrong. I'm simply saying that there's different ways of doing things. And until you allow us to have these same type of control, we're not going to be given that opportunity to maybe do things completely differently and yet reach a different audience. Really powerful. Thank you, Lauren, so much for all this. So I want to ask you, what gives you hope? If you had asked me that a year ago, I wouldn't have known completely what to say. But right now in the time that we're at, it's absolutely um, the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the young people. I feel like young people right now, to try to explain to people our age hope, about what Food Empowerment Project does, it requires an explanation. To the younger generations, they need no explanation. They already get it. I don't even have to explain to them how these issues are connected. They get it. Wow. So it's absolutely what's happening in the world today is giving me hope. It's just scratching the surface. Absolutely. But even just taking down the statues of Confederate soldiers, of racists. Although that's scratching the surface, we want much more than that. And we deserve much more than that. To imagine myself being in Texas and seeing statues to the people who in my textbooks showed killing my people and my ancestors was a great start. This is giving me hope. This is giving me hope that this generation is just not going to take it. And I am so thankful for them. And I'm standing by their side or I'm standing behind them or in front of them to protect them, whatever it is that they need me to do. During the Michael Brown protest here in Santa Rosa, everybody laid in the middle of the street and cars were trying to drive over the activist. And as an elder, as I see myself now, I stood up and accepted it was my responsibility to maybe not be able to participate and lay down in the street, but I had to make sure these cars didn't run over the activist. So there's a place for all of us in what's happening right now. And we just need to learn to listen and to watch and to support as much as we can. So this change goes much further than just tearing down these statues, that we tear down these systems that have never been made um, for many of us to succeed in this country. Yeah, really powerful. And and it cut out a little bit there, but you said that you were holding cars back from coming towards the protesters that were laying down. So I just wanted to clarify that. So I know that some vegans might say, oh, it's just too much to think about my chocolate or the oceans or whatever. You know, I'm already doing so much for veganism or the animal issue that they are focused on. What would you say to that? I would understand. I mean, I know that going vegan can be a tremendous change in someone's life because 
it impacts every aspect of it really because we eat. (laughs) We have the privilege several times a day. So I get that. And I would say that, you know, in the work that we do at Food Empowerment Project, we're not asking anybody to change necessarily what it is that they're doing for non-human animals as much as we're asking them to be more consistent in their ethics. And in fact, what we call eat your ethics. So to make sure that you're not buying chocolate that's supporting slavery and child labor, that you're honoring boycotts called by farm workers themselves, that you're thinking more about your food choices in terms of how it impacts everyone. And so to look at these as opportunities to help make the world a better place and really just to be more consistent. But I don't want anybody ever thinking this is, you know, I can't do all this and not do anything, right? Because that's how we hear vegans people who we're trying to talk to about going vegan. That's what they say as well. And so this is a way that we can show too that we're willing to grow and we can open our minds as well to new forms of oppression and adjust our our lives accordingly. Yeah, no, that's great. I think once someone has been vegan, solidly vegan for, you know, a period of time and they feel secure in it, you shouldn't stop there. That that shouldn't be the end of it. I mean, there's so much more that we can do. So once you're feeling secure in that, you know, then there's so many other issues that you can incorporate in your life to do better. So we do need to wrap up soon. How can our listeners get a hold of you and how can they help Food Empowerment Project and further your mission? Well, we have a website, foodispower.org. We also have two sites, uh, veganmexicanfood.com, which is in English and in Spanish, just like our main site. We also have veganphilippinexfood.com, and that is in English and Tagalog. We're actually working on vegan Lao food right now as well. And we are on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And People are welcome to reach out to us. We're always happy to have more volunteers um, help grow our work. Thank you so much for being with us, Lauren. It was really wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Hope. And thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can support this podcast by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also support us by going to hopefortheanimalspodcast.org and signing up on our e-news list or making a donation with the donation button. We appreciate your support so much. And please have hope for a better world for animals and live vegan. (laughs) 